Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Hello, and welcome to Fairy and Fantasy, episode 32. This time, Professor Olson and his class discuss mortality and immortality and the love of trees in Peter S. Beagle's The Last Unicorn, chapters 5 through 8. Good morning. I'm glad you all found uh, the way here and everything. Uh, I actually found out late yesterday afternoon that we could have been in our room, that the bumping was ephemeral, in fact, or not either ephemeral or illusory, one or the other. Uh, but in the end, I thought that trying to countermand what I said in class could just create more confusion than otherwise, so that we just live with being here today. Or we could just turn around and You could lecture as we walk. To the no. 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 I understand. I understand. And this message to all the people who ever listen to this later on: appreciate the sacrifice made by the noble students in this class, not to go outside for the sake of posterity. What they have given up for your benefit shall never be forgotten. <laughs> now let's talk about the book. Um, I, I, I want to start with a not very important passage today. Uh, and I'm starting with this, again, not because I, I think that this is like a crucial and pivotal moment in these chapters, but because I think it illustrates the kind of thing that we have to be aware of and we have to be doing with this book. That is, there are many times where we get these small snippets or small scenes which are kind of interjected, which don't obviously plot-wise relate to many other things, um, but are strange and kind of tantalizing and I think a really important part of how this book works. The scene I'm thinking of is when the tree falls in love with him. <laughs> uh, Try to contain yourself, yeah. Aaron. Uh, Aaron's, Aaron's laughter is based upon her fond memories of the truly puzzling film version of this scene, uh, which is... Which is unfortunate. And try, if you know what I'm talking about, if you don't, be grateful. If you do, try. I know you can't unsee what you've seen, but uh, try to distance yourself from it as much as possible. Uh, but anyway, um, and mainly because, not just because it's traumatizing, which it is, but because uh, it's very different from what we see in the scene, and I want to be able to see uh, to see what's going on here. As a, this, I think, is an example of a moment, this sort of isolated moment, um, but instead of kind of passing over, I mean, one impulse is to sort of read that and be like, well, uh, that was weird, and then kind of move on. Um, and I want to basically sort of challenge us not to do that when we're thinking about how this works. Um, page 94 uh, is the passage that I'm thinking of. You will remember... Uh, this is after Schmendrick has conjured up the image of Robin Hood and his band, and Cully's band has scattered in pursuit, except for Cully and Jack Jingley, and they've tied him to a tree. Um, and during the night when he is tied to this tree, the tree, for reasons best known to itself, falls in love with him. Um, and I, I just want to... I, I want to re read almost the entire passage here. Um, what happened instead was that the tree fell in love with him and began to murmur fondly of the joy to be found in the eternal embrace of a red oak. Always, always, it sighed, faithfulness beyond any man's deserving. I will keep the color of your eyes when no other in the world remembers your name. There is no immortality but a tree's love. I am engaged, Schmendrick excused himself, to a western larch since childhood. Marriage by contract, no choice in the matter. Hopeless. Our story is never to be. 
A gust of fury shook the oak, as though a storm were coming to it alone. Galls and fire blight on her, it whispered savagely. Damned softwood, cursed conifer, deceitful evergreen, she'll never have you. We will perish together, and all trees shall treasure our tragedy. <coughs> Along his length, Schmendrick could feel the tree heaving like a heart, and he feared that it might actually split in two with rage. The ropes were growing steadily tighter around him, and the night was beginning to turn red and yellow. He tried to explain to the oak that love was generous precisely because it could never be immortal, and then he tried to yell for Captain Cully, but he could only make a small creaking sound like a tree. She means well, he thought, and gave himself up for love. Now, my question is, what do we do with this? I'm not asking, why does this happen? That's... Uh, it's, it's a kind of it's, it's, it's the question I'm actually tempted to ask, but it's a bad question because it suggests different kinds of answers than I think we can give. And certainly, when I when I ask what's going on here, I'm not asking like try to like read the mind of Peter Beagle and guess what he was thinking when he wrote this or something. How does it function? What does it do? What do we see happening here? Whenever I'm asking these questions, the answers are generally right there. What do we see? Start with observations. What's important here? Okay. Um, immortalities and mortality are huge in this book, and uh, the tree brings it up again and again in their conversation. Sort of, um, I guess, the relationship between um, you know the immortality of the tree is love, but uh, because this love is so potent, it's going to cause her to destroy them both, and then being dead, then they'll be immortal because. The, the legend of their love is going to live on. Yeah. Um, that, that's really fascinating. She gives them a choice of immortality, right? The immortal love of the oak, the unbending, unyielding, unwavering, and when he, didn't, when he refuses that, she's going to make them immortal through the tragic story of their end. Um, now, this, of course, already suggests my next question my next sort of overarching question after we answer the what's going on here question is going to be, how does this relate to the other stuff that's going on? What kinds of connections is the story inviting us to draw? And it seems a little bit conspicuous under the circumstances. What has just happened? It was just finished happening in the previous page? Characters in a story made immortal through retelling have just trooped across the field and Molly Grew has made the statement... We're the legends, they're the reality. Right? Um, and so here we have the tree offering him what it seems she believes she has in her power to offer, a kind, one kind of immortality. Now, I don't know that that's true. I don't think we're supposed to get the impression here that the tree actually has the power to make him immortal, um, you know, that she has magic or something. She seems deluded in this, I think we're supposed to understand that the tree is mistaken in believing she can make him... That maybe her love will be immortal. Come to think of it, that's all she promises, isn't it? Um, but, but now she's... Uh, she, so that different kind of immortality that she's offering him is, interestingly, exactly the kind of immortality that we've just seen. Right? So that's, that's, that's it. But, but, but back more. So other things that are going on here, other things that are being emphasized in this little anecdote. Immortality, clearly, very important. And how is he set free? From the tree? Why does he not die? The unicorn. The unicorn sets him free. The immortal unicorn. So clearly, 
that's that's an issue here. Aaron, what else? Well, still playing off the immortality versus immortality, this scene reminded me of uh, about 30 pages back on page 60 when Schmendrick is first asking to go on the journey with the unicorn, and uh, the unicorn says, there is the unicorn thought, feeling the first spidery touch of sorrow on the inside of her skin. This is how it will be to travel with a mortal all the time. And that the... The morta- his, their mortality is painful to her, painful for her to be around. Yeah, yeah, and and that link between mortality and sorrow that seems to be suggested there in her experience. Um, and obviously, this is something we're going to be coming back to uh, later on. I mean, we got right up to the change of the unicorn into a human being, and we're going to be thinking about that and what happens with that. Obviously, as we move forward, um, but but yeah, so that that link between the fundamentally different perspective between the emotions and, and the state of immortality, the fundamentally different perspective of the immortal creature. Um, and the tree... <coughs> but where does the tree actually stand? That is, if we've got humans and unicorns, right, as kind of the two primary mortality-immortality poles that have been presented to us here, um, poles is perhaps... Uh, a silly way to put it. The humans are the representatives, or the, 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 the mortal ones that we hear from, and the unicorn is the one who is sort of speaking on behalf of the immortals and immortal things. Where's the tree? The tree kind of falls in between because the tree offers this promise of immortality, but the tree is more not as mortal as a human is, because a tree can live to be almost a thousand years old, but someday a tree will die and will be cut down. Yeah, yeah, that's, I love the way you said that. That seems exactly right. The tree is not as mortal as a human, right? And, and, and which is, I think, one of the fascinating things about this moment, right? That we do get that glimpse of this other kind of category. It, kind of, it seems like a binary system, right? Either you're mortal or you're immortal. Well, not, it seems, according to the tree. The tree is neither as mortal as a human, nor as immortal as a unicorn. And in fact, we shouldn't be surprised because we've already seen uh, somebody else on this scale. The butterfly, right? The butterfly who's way more mortal than a human being. So mortal that his experience is like completely disjointed. And he's completely inarticulate. He has, seems to have almost no reflection upon what he's doing. He's just a, a, a random and flitting gatherer of snatches of song. Um, the tree... So, if, so, so hey, we have like the mortality spectrum, right? Butterfly, human, oak, unicorn. Um, but that itself I think challenges how we think about the unicorn's immortality. Because at the, begin- at the beginning, it seems like an obvious binary. She is immortal. Other things are mortal. We get that kind of sense in that first description of her in her wood. And the animals in her wood, right? Um, that she didn't do any of the things that they do. Things like reproduce and grow and be born and die and that sort of thing. And so she never failed to be interested to watch them. Right? We get this at the end of like the second paragraph of the book. Um, again, suggesting we have mortal stuff over here in this category and her as the immortal over here. And I'm not sure that that's in the end what we see. Yeah, Jordan, what else? Um, I think a better category categorization of, of the, if we want a binary system, which I think actually is a good idea, is the known and the other. 
because the tree is immortal in the sense that it's aware that it's it's aware of mortality and understands that its perspective is different than everyone else's. It's like I live so long, you are but butterflies. You are to me as butterflies are to you. The unicorn doesn't understand that its 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 experience is unrelated to it. Doesn't it gets sees mortality from the outside and doesn't even think about the, the difference in tree butterfly human. It's, it's, it's other in, in, a, in a very... Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I, I mean, I think you're pointing to a really important thing. Though I'm not sure I agree with all of your categorizations. That is, I think we can see evidence of ignorance, the kind of ignorance that you're talking about, that lack of knowledge, that lack of comprehension of other perspectives, even, therefore, what is also attached to that, a lack of understanding of one's own position, one's own nature, in all of them. Um, the butterfly seems to be fairly unreflective. <coughs> the unicorn, as you say, one, the unicorn is kind of oblivious, at least at times. And there does seem to be, a, 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 you know, that she's kind of cut off from from other things. But the tree, the tree's fooling itself too. I mean, even just in the fact, I mean, we can't totally overlook the fact that it's kind of silly that the tree is falling in love with the human dude who happens to be tied to her at this time. Um, though, I mean, it's such a delightful moment that it's like the, the, the taking of this image, him bound to a tree. And, you know, so that is, he's, you know, these, 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 these rogues, these thieves or whatever have, have, have tied him to a tree. There he is, uh, a captive of them. But now we're asking to sort of look at the same exact thing and just suddenly shift our perspective. No, he is not the prisoner of the of the of the rogues. He is tied to the tree, right? Like, the tree is not a mere inanimate object to which he has been tied. I mean, it's almost like a, the next step would be to like look at the situation from the rope's perspective or something. I mean, like it's, 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 you know, in, in doing this. And doing it in the middle of a paragraph. I just find, for some reason, I find that extra audacious. Um, what Beagle has done is invited us to really shift our perspective around. Right now, all of a sudden, we're thinking about the tree and the tree's point of view. And the tree's point of view turns out to be something unexpected and a little bit strange. Um, even that... I mean, Schmendrick's response is as silly as the initial situation. I mean, oh, no, I'm sorry. I've already... I've been... Uh, I, 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 I'm in an arranged marriage with a Western large. Um, it's really hard not to laugh. A, but, but, of course, the tree's response is, like, tragedy. I have been thwarted in love. We shall both die together. Like, uh, you know, the tree alone seems to think that it is, like you know, in Romeo and Juliet or something, right? I mean, that this is like some kind of serious, thwarted love tragedy. Um, and that's kind of oblivious, really. Um, again, and even back to the initial proposal, like its offer of immortality, yeah, it's love, Mike, it's not immortal. Comparatively immortal, again, thinking of of cat's vocabulary, more immortal than human love, but but he's not. It's not gonna make him any more immortal. So even the love, even the the you know, like the positive version instead of the tragic version uh, of 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 the love affair that the tree is proposing is also 
not connected to reality, really. Not recognizing, uh, Jordan, to use your term there, not recognizing his otherness, it seems, in that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, to go back to the scale of immortality, yeah. do you think that, um, that Robin Hood falls on that scale even farther to the immortal side than the unicorn does? Because he's immortal, but he can't actually interact with him. Uh, well, see, it sounds like actually you are also invoking Jordan's scale as well. If we're thinking about in scale of how connected one is to others, and that Robin Hood is clearly on the extreme end of that, um, completely is an idea which is completely disconnected. But an idea which is being given life by the magic. Um, it's, there is a sense in which what has happened there is not merely illusion. Or rather, it's a different kind of thing. We're told it's a different kind of thing than <coughs> what Schmendrick usually does. Which is also not precisely illusion, even though what he's doing is often sleight of hand. But nevertheless, he, you know, we're told like, with, the, with the, his juggling, right, and on a good night he can make them catch fire. And that's not just... It appears to, they appear to be on, in, on fire, but they're not really. There's real magic involved there. But again, it's, it's, it's tricky. I'm not sure that we can apply that idea of the sort of scale of immortality um, to Robin Hood in kind of the same way. But, but, but you're right to ask about that. Because, again, especially in the immediate context, as the immediate context of this scene... Um, it is possible, in some ways, to point to Robin Hood and Maid Marian and Little John as they parade across the and say, that is the permanent thing. Um, Captain Cully is the fake thing. As Molly says, he's the fake thing. And the passing thing. Especially if he never finds Mr. Child, the anthologist who goes around field recording uh, people. Um, yeah. Um, like Andrew Lang, of course. Um, if he doesn't find, or rather, if Mr. Child doesn't find him, he's not going to be immortal either. Um, and you can't leave folk tales to people. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> people screw up folk tales. You've got to do everything for them. Um, just wonderful. Okay, I don't want to spend the whole class on the tree, but again, the, 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 I wanted to talk not only because I find that a really interesting moment. Of course, there's another major theme in it that we didn't talk about, namely love and the connection between love and immortality and, uh, and love and death and uh, things that, this, that that moment also invites us to think about. Um, but I, I, it, not only because I find that a really interesting and important moment, but also because I think that it's an instructive moment in, that is instructive to us in trying to figure out uh, and see what to do, like how to handle this book and what to do. That there are times when we get these... I often think, and maybe I'm wrong to think this, but when I'm reading, like, you know, I'm reading The Last Unicorn, or I'm reading a Shakespeare play, especially a Shakespeare play. Um, sorry, Aaron, to bring up a sensitive... Actually, I guess it's a fine thing to bring up today, isn't it? You know? <laughs> um, anyway... When there's something which seems out there, something which seems like you just come across and you're like, that seems totally random. Why is that there? I don't understand. This seems like a complete digression. Um, 
I, I often think that those are really interesting and important moments to focus on. Um, if we can begin with at least the theory that it's there for a reason and that it might actually be doing something, often those are really instructive moments. Um, and I think that we need to look at moments like this uh, in this story um, and be thinking about them in these terms. What, kinds of, what kind of promptings are these moments giving us? How do they invite us to make these kinds of, these kinds of connections? What kind of ideas do they raise? Um, okay, your turn. What passage do you guys want to talk about? Passage, scene, idea. Rachel? Do you guys remember the bluebird? I was just thinking about what you were mentioning about those moments. I, we didn't. We didn't. Let's talk about the bluebird passage. Yeah. yeah, it's going back a little bit, but it's okay. We skipped it. Um, see. Rachel, your, your, your suggestion is providentially affirmed. The random page I had in my book turned over to is the blue thing. So, so I, there you are. Page 1661. A blue jay swooped low over them on that first day of their journey and said, well, I'll be a squab under glass, and flapped straight home to tell his wife about it. She was sitting on the nest, singing to their children in a dreary tone. Dreary drone, sorry. Spiders and sow bugs and beetles and crickets, slugs from the roses and ticks from the thickets, Grasshoppers, snails, and a quail's egg or two, all to be regurgitated for you. Lullaby, lullaby, swindles and schemes. Flying's not near as much fun as it seems. Um, I didn't do that line quite right. All to be regurgitated for you, clearly, is how it is supposed to go. This is a very, uh, a very meter-heavy uh, uh, song. Um, so apart, uh, well, I will come back to this. We'll come back to this. Saw a unicorn today, the blue jay said as he lit. You didn't see any supper, I notice, his wife replied coldly. I hate a man who talks with his mouth empty. <laughs> Baby, a unicorn! The jay abandoned his casual air and hopped up and down on the branch. I haven't seen one of those since the time. You've never seen one, she said. This is me, remember? I know where wh- what you've seen in your life and what you haven't. The jay paid no attention. There was a strange-looking party in black with her, he rattled. They were going over Cat Mountain. I wonder if they were heading for Haggard's country. He cocked his head at, to the artistic angle that, he had, that had first won his wife. What a vision for old Haggard's breakfast, he marveled. A unicorn coming to call, bold as you please. Rat-tat-tat on his dismal door. I'd give anything to see. I suppose the two of you didn't spend the whole day watching unicorns. His wife inter... Oh, sorry. Did I skip a picture? Yeah. Um... His wife interrupted with a click of her beak. At least I understand that she used to be considered quite imaginative in matters of spare time. She advanced on him, her neck feathers ruffling. Honey, I haven't even seen her, the blue jay began, and his wife knew that he hadn't and wouldn't dare, but she batted him one anyway. She was one woman who knew what to do with a slight moral edge. (laughs) This is an excellent example, Rachel, of exactly the kind of passage that I'm talking about. Perfectly natural to read that and say, like, what the heck is that doing in this book? How does this forward the story in the slightest way? Well, what do you think? Including a song which contains the word regurgitated in a line? 
which sounds like a poetic challenge, doesn't it? Like, write a poem in which you use the word regurgitated. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Rachel, what do you think? see there is a it's it's singular because of that that irregularity it's true everyone so far has not been able to see the unicorn schmendrick knew that it was a unicorn um uh, mommy fortuna knew that it was a unicorn uh but most of everybody else has just seen a white mare and we talked about of course last time how mommy fortuna has to use her illusions in order to get people to see what it actually really is, right? She can't just put a unicorn on display uh, because people will only see a horse. Um, and remember the unicorn's reaction when talking to the butterfly, and after a steady stream of nonsense, the butterfly starts uh, giving the etymology of unicorn, right? And, and the unicorn's like, oh, you know who I am, right? And so that to the unicorn, it seems striking, it seems remarkable. It had separated Schmendrick out from the beginning, not only the fact that he could see it, but how he responded to the unicorn. Um, so it is true in that context, a little scene, moment, anecdote, in which we get a creature simply saying, saw a unicorn today, seems really striking. Um, not only that, it did see it but that it's speaking of it so casually, and that the wife is responding to it <coughs> as she is. Right? Um, she doesn't say, wow, or, you know, I don't believe you. Or She doesn't seem interested in what he's saying, and uh, is only using it as an occasion to sort of manipulate things around to her. I mean, she's, she's, but she's clearly uninterested in the unicorn. Um, and that, that is, I think, an interesting glimpse. What about her song? What do we do with her song? What do we see in her song? What kind of... Her song, I would argue, is the clearest cue that we get as readers to know what to do with her. Anyway. Yeah, Aaron? Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but for some reason the line flying's not near as much fun as it seems jumps out to me. And yeah. Given, again, going back to more what we've talked about, and you know, it's everybody's dream to be immortal, to live forever, but maybe that's not so great as we think it might be. I think it's a neat parallel. Um, and certainly, I mean, under the context, it's so depressing. What's the context of this song and that line in this song? Huh? I heard it. I heard it. She's feeding her children. Yeah, she's, it's, she's singing this to her kids. Who can't fly yet, but will someday learn to fly is not nearly as much fun as it seems. It's yeah, it's really sad. It's really sad. Um, even like the <laughs> the way that she starts the song. Right? She's singing about food. Now, I mean, okay, like spiders and sawbugs and beetles and crickets might not sound, you know, like a delightful song to us. But to little birds, it would be, right? She's thinking about the things that they actually eat. 
Slugs from the roses and ticks from the thickets. I love that line. Um, ticks from the thickets is, uh, is just delightful. But, but then the term, all to be regurgitated for you. Uh, I mean, that's perfectly natural. But the whole cast that it gives to things. Ah, these delightful things you're going to be fed and you're going you're gonna to be getting them secondhand after I hack them up for you. Um, you know, and then the transition between, I think that all to be regurgitated for you clearly works as a kind of pivot in this verse. We have those three, three lines which sound, which like, sound like they're going to be a happy song. Again, like very bird-flavored, but, but happy. And then that certainly puts us in a questionable light. And then that last line, as Aaron points out, is kind of depressing. And then the transition between that lullaby, lullaby, swindles and schemes. Flying is not nearly as much fun as it seems. Yeah, Christine? I kind of compare the last line to the just her, her general like parental or motherly side to protect her children's mortality coming in. I mean, like kind of like how parents tell their kids like driving is not really that much fun, and kids are like, I really want to drive. <coughs> yeah, I mean, there is a kind of lowering of expectations here. Um, clearly, I agree. Um, but there's also, I mean, attached with that kind of dissatisfaction with being. You know? This is not like, we are birds. We are birds, children. Take joy in being birds, right? There, there are wonderful things about being birds, such as flying, right? It's like, that flying's not really, I mean, like, what we do. And I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way. I think that parents are doing exactly the same thing, you know? And kids are like, oh, I really can't wait to do that. And parents are like, actually, it's really not that great. It's like, well, great, thank you for teaching your kid to take no joy in life. Like, <laughs> heaven for fend, you should let it go the other direction. But, uh, but no, I mean, I think that's exactly what, what we can see happening there. Well, I, I read it as um, more like she's, like, as a, as, a, as a further illustration of her character. And she seems very bitter and angry. And, like, so, like, the first part, you know, it's like, oh, you get to eat all these delicious things. I do too, but then I have to get my way to you. <laughs> and then, like, little by little, less moves and schemes. She's clearly worried that her husband's out with this other, presumably, a bird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can't make any assumptions here. Yeah. Could be a large, we don't know. So, like, swindles and schemes, that kind of thing, and then flags. It sounds like she's saying the last line to herself. Like, you know, I can't fly anywhere. I have to stay here with you. All day. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome because who wants to fly anyhow? Yeah. 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 No, I, you're right. I mean, and, and, and that's, I wasn't thinking of the regurgitation. I was thinking of the regurgitation line from the perspective of the listeners to the song. Um, think of all these wonderful things that I'm about to hack up to you in a half digested state. But rather, uh, from her perspective, as you say, yeah, like I almost get to eat all these wonderful things. I kind of temporarily eat them, uh, but then I have to give them up again right away. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of a bleak sense of, uh, of uh, uh, a bleak view of um, not very cheerful self-sacrifice on the part of a not entirely willing self-sacrifice, and certainly <coughs> the kind of sniping that she's doing at the husband's <coughs> 
clearly illustrates that same thing, especially with how far the narrator goes out of his way to emphasize repeatedly that her suspicions are groundless and she doesn't even believe them, right? That she's really, she's just doing it not because she's jealous, not because she's suspicious, but just because she gets, in the end, what she wants. What she really wants seems to be to... Yeah, hit him. I was, gonna, I was looking at the... What was, uh, oh, to, to bat him one. That, that's, that, that's, I was making sure I got the phrase right. But that's what she really wants, right? She wants an excuse to, 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 to bat him one. Um, Yay, domestic violence? <laughs> <laughs> For birds. For birds? Like, yeah, no, I... I, I don't think her perspective is being upheld as truly admirable and that we should follow her example, but certainly she seems to be pro-domestic violence of a certain kind, anyway. Um, no, I mean, that's... Uh, I think you're right, Will. But then, what, then again, the same question. Therefore, what do we do with this? See, I almost did it. I actually stopped myself in the middle of forming the first word to the question, why is this here? Right? How does it work? What connections are we invited to make? I can't help myself. Why do we get the bluebirds? As long as you know what I really mean by the why question, I'll ask it anyway. I thought it was interesting because bluebirds are associated with happiness. I guess this is the whole like, reading into the my shoulder. Symbols and traditions all of them that are in this book. Um, yes. So I thought it was interesting that you see um, marital disputes among happy, joyful bluebirds. Yes. And they're talking about we, we, I don't think we get an idea of the connotation of the place they're going, but it sounds like the, the bluebird knows that the unicorn and Spendrick, I think she's traveling with at this point, yeah. Um, yeah. Is, are going somewhere sort of dark and dangerous. And but still, that, that, the rejection... Uh, how we could take... The, 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 the most enthusiastic of the, of the male bluebird's speeches... Baby, I saw a unicorn today. There's, there's something there <coughs> that she won't embrace, that she rejects, whatever. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's not just that we see like a disgruntled and disconsolate bluebird who is like stuck in a, uh, you know, in like a, an unhappy domestic life, which I agree with you is very emphatically going against sort of traditional uh, associations associations that we would have. Um, But coming back to Rachel's first point, um, the the bluebirds are apparently able to see unicorns. Um, It's not an issue. But yet we see in her a resistance to and rejection of the unicorn thing. She's not interested. She doesn't care. The kind of resistance which seems to contribute to humans being able actually not even to perceive her existence. Um, yeah, Christine? Um, well, not only do I think it's like desirability on Peter Beagle's part to insert like all this like, humor 
I'm sure he's really enjoyed writing this. And, um, <laughs> I think so. I, sure from I the tone of his voice in the audio <laughs> version, I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. It's it's actually it's really fun to read. Uh, to, to it's it, it's really fun to listen to him read it um, because you can tell which bits he reads he's really enjoying. Um, and there are some of them which there's some places in the book which I think they seem actually to be they work much better in audio um, uh, than they do on the page. I, I think that he he seems to be really thinking of it as more of an audio performance. But Oh, um, but I also think that as we, uh, I guess, the sort of, I guess, recreation of, of a fantasy world, since it's becoming, I guess at this point, it's becoming known, like, what makes a fantasy in a fantasy genre, but it's sort of like, oh, blue birds aren't always happy, like, didn't you know? Like, that's, that's what that's what you've gotten in another fantasy, but really they're not. And then you get something like, this is how trees really act, or... Um, <laughs> the tragic private life of trees. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, um, yeah. I'm trying to think of a better example, like... Well, I mean, uh, Kali. Just you know, Kali like, and Molly, too. I mean, they, they, are, they are sort of... There's that... They also are part of that confrontation between you know a real situation and the the fairy tale it's like a, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a shrek situation where you're just given like a bunch of fantasy things and you're just like actually fantasy actually happens like this like this is this is how it really happens so mm-hmm. it's sort of like a humanistic <coughs> twist on like recreation like actually you're wrong right no i i, I think that uh, um it would be an interesting comparison, especially since I don't think they're doing anything like the same thing with it, but certainly this book and the movie Shrek are, in, are, are doing a very similar thing. That is, both of them are kind of looking at the, the nature and boundaries of fairy tale. Uh, in, 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 their, their concerns are very similar. I don't think they're going exactly the same place with it, um, but the two of them are certainly doing a very similar thing um, in some ways. No, I agree. And that, I think, is exact. That is certainly a kind of thing that we can, I think, sort of take away from this passage, and that it sort of helps us, um, gives us some, some cues and helps us to understand some other passages. Um, I want to talk about Molly's reaction to the unicorn. What'd you make of that? It's sad. What do we do with it? Well... Let me ask the necessary previous question. What is it? What happens? What does she say? Liz? She says, the Yeah. Yeah. Schwendrick is surprised that she perceives that it's a unicorn to start off with. And he's shocked at her response, which is... What is it again? She blames it. Yeah. Why are you here now? Where have you been? She keeps saying. Where have you been? Why have you come now? It would be the last unicorn that comes to Molly. It would be the last unicorn that comes to Molly group. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful one. 
What do we see here? Well, well I mean, unicorns are traditionally symbols of purity. And uh, youth, I guess, you know, only a young virgin yeah. uh, can like, ride a unicorn and see a unicorn, that kind of thing. So, like, it's like, um, it's like looking in a really judgmental mirror for Molly Girl, I guess. Like, you know, she looks at it and she sees every missed opportunity in her life. Yeah. It's certainly, she is drawing attention to the fact of how she, of the ways in which she is unlike that fairy tale version of the girl who encounters the unicorn. Um, and not just encounters by chance, but of course, as we've seen, uh, uh, like the, the traditional way to kill a unicorn is to, to, to bring a young virginal girl uh, whom the unicorn will approach and docilely lay its, lay its head in, in her lap and then get shot or stabbed by the hunters who are lying in ambush around, you know, the, the virgin whom they have put there as bait, essentially. In fact, remember the story of Nikos turning the unicorn into a prince? That's how it happened. Um, that's what he saved the unicorn from, was exactly that particular unicorn hunting tactic. Um, so anyway, those, are the sto- th- those, those stories, kind of in the background... Um, and yet Molly is painfully aware I am not young I am not beautiful I am not pure and we think back to the uh, the domestic scene Schmedrick doesn't like domestic scenes right? the domestic scene between her and Kelly earlier on which on the one hand is funny but I mean it's, it's, it's delivered in ways which is clearly designed to be comical on one level about how like she's let herself run to seed, like we might as well be married. You've let yourself run to seed so much, which doesn't sound funny at all. Except you know he's saying like you know you haven't done any weaving in a long you know it's been years since you've illuminated a manuscript. I can't help but laugh at that. That's that's, that's funny. Um, you see what he's what Beagle has done. He's sort of taken like a 19th century like Jane Austen esque conception of like a young lady's accomplishments. Right, she draws. Uh, she uh, uh, she 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 does embroidery. Right, she sings, um, and uh, and has t- transplanted it into this sort of like forced, uh, anachronistic, quasi medieval setting. Like instead of do- sitting around doing embroidery, she was weaving tapestries. Like her tapestry of the vigil that came in fifth that year, because everybody was doing vigils. And uh, the and 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 from the you know the watercolors um, uh, of Jane Bennett to to illuminated manuscripts, um, but but the the mix of comedy and pathos there is 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 really strong. And clearly, she she she's not pure. One of the at the very least, one of the facts that we get from that exchange is that they're not they're not married. Um, she's run off to live with Cully in the wilderness. And has been deeply unhappy. Clearly, been deeply unhappy. Um, and he's not been very good to her at all. Yeah. What I find interesting is it's very clear in this passage. Molly really wanted a unicorn to come to her when she was young, and then a few pages later, we get the scene between the princess and the prince in yeah. the woods, and yeah. the princess calls for a unicorn but doesn't really care that one come, doesn't come to her. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. This is. Um, not only should we be remembering Molly's reaction there and to see the contrast there, but we're reminded further when 
Molly responds to this scene. When the unicorn, when after the prince and princess go away, the unicorn is actually right there. The unicorn did hear the song and just chose not to go to the princess, though she could have. Um, and she explains she used to do I used to do that all the time. Go to princesses when they call. Um, but I didn't. And then Molly responds to that. And she, what she seems to be responding to is something along the lines, Jordan, of what you were pointing out before. Um, that is, she's addressing the perspective. And might we say cluelessness of the unicorn? Um, I wish you were something that can't wait, she says to the unicorn. Again, clearly addressing the difference in perspective and in some sense possibly the lack of perspective um, that immortality has 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 brought to the unicorn. Jordan, go ahead. That was actually the scene I was going to suggest to look at because it, it, it's the end of it, especially where she sings a song that's very much like Mommy Fortuna's song. And where do you hear that song? I don't know. I've known it a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that to me is the quintessential moment of this book. We, we, who, who has choices need not choose. We must who have none. We can love, but what we lose, what's gone is gone. I've known it a long time. It, she's basically trying to sum up mortality, and they're not trying to, but she is without really trying to. Yes, and it's interesting. She's is she singing the same song that Mommy Fortuna was singing as Ellie? The ending line of all the voices is "What is gone is gone." Yeah, it it is. But what is interesting is that it's a different. It's not like she's just quoting. That would be interesting enough if she were just singing one of the same stanzas that she's saying, she's not. She's continuing, seamlessly continuing Mommy Fortuna's song. This happens, by the way, on page 33 and 34. Should you, for some reason, because I keep suggesting that you should because it's awesome, go back and look at this song in more detail, page 33 and 34, and then again on 41 are the three verses that Mommy Fortuna, as Ellie, old age, sings. And then page 105 is... Molly Grew's sort of reprise of the old age and death song. Who has choices need not choose. We must who have none. We can love but what we lose. What is gone is gone. This is the ultimate statement of mortality. Right? That's not to say it's the inescapable point of view of mortals, I think. And that seems to be one of the... I mean, you think of... We're not going to have time to talk about this. Think of the perspective that we see in the people of Hangsgate and their attitude towards the curse. Um, you know, they've been cursed, but they are, they are self-cursed. It looks like, of course, a very a popular curse in traditional stories is a curse of barrenness that no one in the town will be able to bear children um, that all the women in the town will, will, will become barren and, there shall, and this, this, this town shall be robbed of, of children that's kind of a pretty common motif in traditional stories and it looks like that's what's happened to Hagscape you look around and everyone's old there are no young people right? but then we find out no, that's just their plan, right? They just themselves called a moratorium on childbearing. 
in order to prevent the curse from coming about, um, and of course have therefore heaped curse upon curse um, in the, you know, the, the self-cursed town of Hagsgate. But there again, I think we can see what outlook do you have as a mortal? Their outlook is pretty... Uh, well, it's very interesting. It's not the same as the the Ellie song outlook. Um, but again, I think that uh, although that speaks to mortality, the song speaks to mortality, um, it doesn't necessarily... All mortals don't have to speak that way. And this is one of the things that we see in Molly's reaction to the unicorn. She doesn't... She's not just conceding this. That is what she sings in the song. She has known in a long time. Um, but she doesn't just give into it. I could let you guys go. Uh, see you on what is it? See you on Monday, where we will, and there shall be no avoiding it, talk about the Red Bull. If you try to change the topic, I will bring us back to the Red Bull, and it shall reappear in front of you, as if it had been moved like a chess piece. It shall not escape from discussing the Red Bull. That's all for this time. Next time it's chapters 9 through 11 of The Last Unicorn. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.